Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 17. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 17 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a Senior Content Solutions Architect and a Certified Contentful Professional. Today, I'll be chatting all about Dino with my guest, Andres Pirela, a 19-year-old who's working for a large company as a full-stack software engineer using C-sharp, Java, TypeScript, and JavaScript. He's been programming since the age of nine. I can't wait to talk to him. Before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles all focus on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.contentfulcreators.com. All right, Andres, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Marcelo. It's really nice to be here. First of all, you're 19 years old, man. I don't know what I was doing at 19 years old, but I don't think I was working for a software company as a software engineer. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about you because I'm very intrigued that a 19-year-old is working for a large company as a software engineer. And I believe this is your second job, correct? Yeah, this is my second job. Right. And you're 19. So that's pretty amazing. And then you've been programming since you were nine. So tell us about how did you get into programming at nine? And how did you evolve yourself to get to the point where at 19 years old, you have a second job in a large company? Thanks for asking that. I started, well, I wouldn't say programming, but messing with computers when I was nine. So for example, I used to see a lot of files with the extension DLL. And I used to wonder and ask myself, like, what's a DLL? How can I make a DLL file? How can I make? And those kind of questions led me to a point that I was asking myself, how can I make a software? How does this button on Facebook work? And so one thing led to another and kind of the curiosity of it, the curiosity of knowing what's behind a computer, what's behind a click, what's behind a software led me to a point that I started messing with programming languages like PHP, which was my my first programming language, the first programming language I learned. How old were you when you learned that language? I started doing PHP when I was about 10, maybe my late nine years old and 10 years old. Yeah, at the very beginning of my 10 years old age. And I started doing PHP, you know, use simple things, decoding variables, functions and stuff. I always say the, the example, if you bring a kid who, let's say you bring a kid from a Hispanic country and this kid is, I don't know, seven years old and you bring him to or her to United States, that kid is going to learn English so fast because he's a kid. And so he has that ability to learn fast. So I always say the example that kind of happened to me in programming languages. I was a kid. And so picking up a programming language wasn't like really learning it, it was just something that went with the flow of being a kid. You know what I mean? Totally. But obviously, you're a curious guy, right? Because most nine and 10 year olds, they're either watching cartoons on TV, or they want to play with their toys outside or whatever. But you obviously were curious about computers, right? Sure. And that's the main factor. I was really curious about computers. I was really curious about how everything worked inside a computer. 
So one thing led to another and I started just doing programming, you know, trying personal things, downloading scripts from internet and trying to read through the code and stuff. And then I started getting good at it and good at it. It wasn't a hobby anymore. I was already good at it in a professional way, I would say. And so when I was about 14, I started looking for opportunities, not to be a software engineer because I was just getting into high school back in Venezuela, but to work or to have the opportunity in a company to know the codes and the dynamic of the company and how people work in the software industry. So I got an opportunity to design a website and it was a website for a United States company. So I got that opportunity to a friend of my mom. And then I started working on that website, which was C-sharp based. And then I started learning C-sharp, which was a, a major change for me because I really liked C-sharp. It was way better than PHP. I can tell that um, PHP is in the best language. It has a lot of flaws. So when I started learning C-sharp in this job, in this remote job, pretty much, I was like in love with it. And so from that experience, I went to Java. And then, you know, one thing led to another. So this opportunity led to meeting people and knowing more about the industry and the how everything works in the industry. And then when I moved to the United States about three years and a half ago, I got the opportunity to work in a small company. I wasn't there for a long time. But then I got the the opportunity, which I I would call my first real job. I got the opportunity to work at a large tech company in South Florida as a Java engineer. And it was a really great, great experience. I worked there for 10 months and now I'm working on a insurance company. It's not a tech company, but um, the software department is 200 people. So I would call, there's a tech company inside an insurance company because of the how large it is. So that's kind of, that's kind of my background. And yes, I started programming at a very young age and everything was based on my curiosity on how things worked. Well, I got to tell you, it's a really an amazing background. I mean, you've done so much more than some adults that I know in such a, you say you worked for a long time, but really you're 19, right? So you haven't worked for a long time yet, but you've done so much. So it's truly amazing. You should be proud of what you've accomplished. And honestly, we could do an entire podcast and just chatting about your background. I think you've got a fantastic future ahead of you. I appreciate that and I'll be glad to do it. Let's jump into Dino here because a lot of people, including me, didn't know when Dino was. I heard about it and I'm like, Dino, it sounds like uh, like a cartoon dinosaur or something. Um, and then we found out, obviously, that it's a new runtime. So let's jump into Dino. What is Dino? Who created it? Why was it created? Maybe give us a quick overview. Dino is a TypeScript and JavaScript runtime. It is very different from Node at a fundamental level. So Node, the first thing that a Node doesn't have is security. For example, if you want to create an application and this application would use an HTTP server, in Node, you don't have to tell your runtime, hey, you have my permission to do an HTTP server. No, we just do it without any permission. No, will not ask you for any permission. In Dino, this is changing. So in Dino, if you want to create an application that has access to the file system, you have to tell Dino, hey, you have my permission to have access to the file system because if you don't tell Dino, your application will fail. And 
So Dino is created by Ryan Dahl. Many of you may know Ryan Dahl. He's the same creator of Node.js, and this is his new big project. He created it because of many flaws that Node has and had, but currently has. And from a personal point of view, I think Dino is not only about improving what Node is, improving the concept of Node, but I think Ryan Dahl created Dino because of two things. TypeScript is booming. WebAssembly is starting to being a new thing that everyone is talking about. So I think Ryan saw a really bright window to get back to the industry. He initially was, such as Runtimes, with the opportunity not only to work on something totally new from scratch, but applied experience and regrets he once had with Node.js. Explain to us what a WebAssembly is and why is that important? So WebAssembly is kind of the low-level code for a browser engine. So if you want to compile low-level code in your browser, you would use WebAssembly. So it's kind of the bridge. And it's a new thing. It was created in 2017 by the Mozilla Foundation. And right now it's just starting to be the new huge thing in technology because it gives you a lot of access to create server applications with web programming languages, pretty much like JavaScript. And so, for example, with Node.js, Node.js would compile to C++. And after that, there was like a whole process to create your application inside the V8 engine. But now with WebAssembly, you kind of save the time and the steps to that because now you have a direct bridge between your code and the code level that V8 engine uses. Now, you mentioned that one of the things that Dino is trying to fix from Node is security, that Node allows you to basically run anything, file access, network, whatever, without giving permission. So that's one of the things. Are there other things that Dino is supposed to help out with that is sort of a, a negative or a challenge in Node? Brian Dahl created Dino because of three important issues with Node.js. First, the port design now has for things like package manager. So when you want to import a package manager in Node and when you want to import a module in Node, you have to import the whole repository. So probably you're going to import code that you won't use, but your system needs it because that's the way Node is designed. And Dino is kind of trying to solve that through the use of imports with web URLs. So you just import the code that you're going to actually use. You don't have to import the whole repository. You don't have to import the images or repository has of the readme that those repository has. You just import what you're going to use. The second issue is the lack of security, as we mentioned, which is a huge issue for enterprise level. So if you want to create an application in Node.js, you don't have to give any permission to your application. Node already has it. And that's an issue at an enterprise level that can threat your production environment. And all the flaws besides that, Node.js has a lot of flaws with the concept of asynchronous. So Node, for example, doesn't support top-level await. So that's kind of an issue because not supporting top-level await leads you to having some errors or some bad design patterns such as the callback hill. So Dino is trying to make everything a promise base, everything asynchronous, and Dino supports total weight. So you don't have these kind of things like the callback hell. That's just something that doesn't exist in Dino. 
because of the way you know it's made. In Node.js, for example, you have to create your architecture to support asynchronous events in a way that your application in Node.js is not asynchronous by default. You, you just create the Node.js Node does support asynchronous, but you have to create that architecture. In Dino, that's just something that's already implemented. Dino is promise-based from the bottom up, and that's something that really helps developers with things like design patterns, with things, as I mentioned, the color hill, and just the large use cases that you can give to an application that's asynchronous from scratch. So just, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned security as one of the reasons. Can you explain what are some of the security features of Dino? Maybe get a little bit more into the details of that. So Dino, we have this concept in Dino called flags. So a flag is just a permission you're giving to Dino, and Dino is really permission-restricted, if that makes sense. For example, if you want to access the file system in Dino, you have to tell Dino, hey, I'm giving you my permission to access the file system through a flag, such as a low read or a low write. If you want you know, to use your operative system core, you have to tell Dino, you can use my operative system core and you that passing the flag unstable, which also gives you access to some unstable features of Dino. And if you want to create an HTTP server, which would involve things like TCP, which would involve protocols, SSL, and things like that, you will have to tell Dino, yeah, you can use my network to create an HTTP server, and you will do that with the flag alone net. And that's a major difference. That's a major feature that Dino has, because as I mentioned, you don't want to, in a production environment, you don't want to use, give your application, use any access just because. You want to have a reason of why this application can only read and why this application can only write. So it's really important for Dino. That's kind of a fundamental feature of Dino. Dino without those kind of things is just no Dino. It would be just like a fix for some flaws of Node.js, but not a, not like a new whole thing. So by default, everything is restrictive and you have to open up the doors, basically. Yeah, basically, by default, everything is restricted. Really, if you don't pass any flag, any, if you don't pass any permission, you can just run basic things like console and functions and classes. But you're, if you don't pass any flag, if you don't tell Dino to use any permission, it's unlikely you will be able to use the Dino runtime fully, what the Dino runtime is. So you see... Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, you also mentioned modules, right? And you mentioned that the big changes in modules are imported via URL. So that's a major change. And then it's also there's no centralized package manager like NPM. So maybe we can go in a little bit more detail about modules. When you say they're imported, do you literally just put a URL? And does it download all the necessary code into a cache? What happens if that website is down? Yeah, let's start with that. So Dino uses this new concept of importing with web URLs. So there's not a centralized system such as NPM, as you mentioned. You just have to literally import the URL. So in ECMAScript, in JavaScript, you would import pointing out a directory. In Dino, you would import pointing out a web URL. And that's a major difference because now you don't have to go through the process of using a package manager such as NPM, you don't have to go through the process of 
of telling your package manager to update the dependencies and, and those kind of things. Now you do everything on your own as you feel you have to do it. And there's a lot of discussion about it. There's a lot of discussion whether that's good or that's no good. But um, it's interesting what Dino is doing. So answering your question, yeah, Dino doesn't have any centralized package manager. Everything is decentralized, which means you can import a module from GitHub or from Dino or from a web server you have. As long as you are importing a task group file and you just literally put the URL of the file you want to import in your TypeScript code and you have it. And in regards to where these modules are saved, Dino has a cache folder where all this code that Dino is constantly downloading is going to be cached. So once it's cached, you don't have to worry about downloading it again unless you want to update things like the version of the module you're using or you want to reload all the modules um, you're using. But um, so Dino doesn't have the, the structure of NPM. If you have seen NPM, you see that um, all the modules are downloaded to your projects folder, which is really annoying. It takes a lot of space, it takes a lot of resources, and it makes your code not as readable sometimes. But Dino is trying to fight this with a cache folder that's not related to your project. It's just something that's inside Dino and you don't even see. You see things working, but you don't see what's behind that. So I think that's a plus. I do think that's a plus. So I have a question about that because it's downloading it to a cache folder, but is this cache folder within your project? Because if you begin to distribute this project, you would need that cache folder, or I guess not. I guess it when it first runs, it would use the import from the web to put in its own cache again somewhere else, right? Sure. There's a lot of discussion about it. Mainly because of the question, what about if a website goes down? Will I be able to unload my module? Will my module be stored? And things like that. You don't have those kind of issues with a centralized system because you can trust a centralized system. But now that Dino doesn't have this kind of system, there's a lot of discussion about how to solve that. What you can do, so you have the cache folder where all your modules are unloaded and where all your, yeah, your modules and the versions of it are downloaded. So if you want to use this, what Dino recommends, because as I said, there's a lot of discussion about it. There's no common ground as of right now, as of the, the point that we're talking right now. There's no a common ground about how to handle those kind of things, how to properly handle the cache folder. But what Dino recommends is if you are going to use your application in a production environment, we highly recommend you to have the cache folder inside your project. So you upload your files to your repository manager, such as GitHub, with the modules already going to use. But there's a lot of discussion about it. And you can configure this, you can configure where the cache folder is stored, if at a global place or per project? Yeah, you can configure it. And as I said, there's a lot of Docs, there's a lot of... There's no standards yet. Yeah, Yeah. there's no standards. I think that's mainly because of, of the fact that Dino is used in its early version. And so the Dino collaborators, the Dino community are still trying to figure out how are we going to do this? And what happens if this happens? You know, there's a lot of questions still on the environment. But yes, you can configure where you, your cache folder is going to be. And Dino officially on their website, they recommend to 
if you are developing an application that will be actively used in a production environment, we highly recommend you to configure your cache folder inside your project. Right, right. But, you know, plain devil's advocate here, it does sound a lot like your node modules folder, right? If you store your cache folder inside your project, maybe there's less code, but you kind of are having the same node modules folder structure that you do with node, right? If you do that. Sure. But it, it really depends on the position you're looking at because, for example, you know what's happening to now and what's happening to NPM is that you, when you don't load a module, you don't load the whole repository of a module. So, for example, if you want to use any module, you will download the readme. If it has pictures, you will unload the pictures and so on. With, you know, you just download the code you're going to use. So um, really, if a module have, let's say, 10 files and you're just using one, that means you will have just one file in your cache folder. You don't, you won't have the 10 files of, of that module, just the one that you're using. So a question on that, because I just thought about this, but what if you create a module that people will import, but your module uses other imports URLs, right? Like you're using somebody else's modules in your module that you're sharing. So, I mean, it just seems, and you know, this is for conversation, right? Because nothing is defined yet. Obviously, we're in version 1.1, I think. But it seems that there's potentially a lot of points of failure there, right? If modules within modules within modules can depend on external websites that are hosted by anybody. I could host it on my MacBook Pro if I wanted to, right? And open up a port and host it there. It just seems that there's possible multiple points of failure. What do you think? What's your thought on that? No, there are. There are. And there's actually an issue on the Dino GitHub. And this issue basically talks about what you're saying. So for example, modules can break modules. And that's a huge threat for production environments and for any kind of application because what about if I have a module that depends on a module and this module depends on another module which doesn't exist anymore? Exactly. And so we have one module that can break the whole reliability of Dino. And that's something important. That's something to really look at because you don't, if you're going to develop an application, as a developer, you want to feel sure that your application is going to work today and it's going to work in a thousand days and it's going to benefit your customers. So that's something that's being explored in Dino. I don't think there's a common ground yet. I think there's a lot of discussion to it. It's really interesting what the future prepares to it. And I'm not going to lie, Marcelo. I'm not going to lie. It makes me feel uncomfortable as a developer to have to trust the dependencies of the dependencies of my dependencies. Exactly. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That's a major flaw of Dino. And, and we can say that's a security flaw of Dino because it also involves security. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and it seems like a big flaw, to be honest with you. But obviously, it's brand new, so we'll see how things are defined and developed. But there is something to say about a centralized repository that you know will always have, even if the author, the programmer, decides to no longer support it, it'll be there for you, especially if you use it in production, right? Yes, exactly. And there have been some workarounds. For example, I have seen the Dino community constantly create what they call package managers. And so the Dino community is trying to create package manager or similar things to it. So it's really interesting where this discussion, whether Dino should use a 
centralized package manager, it's really interesting where that's going because there's a lot of people and I have seen a lot of people working on centralized package managers. But um, that kind of fights the fundamentals of the inner, you see? So we have a, a discussion of interest there because the dinner collaborators will say, we don't want a centralized package manager. And the community will say, okay, but I already created it because we need it. So it's really interesting where this is going. Right, right, definitely. And do you know or have an opinion on why they don't want to centralize package manager? Because it just seems by default. I mean, I understand decentralization is always good, right? That's the web. That's how the web grew. I get that. But also reliability is not as good, right? Because like all the reasons we mentioned. So do you know the core idea of why they're so interested in just having a completely decentralized without any kind of entity managing this? I will say that the first thing that's happening right now is that the fact when you use a package manager, a centralized package manager, such as NPM, you have the issue of downloading a whole bunch of code that you will not use. But you can fix that in a centralized package manager that doesn't do that, right? So you can still have centralization without giving you code that you don't need. Correct. And that's kind of the thing that I, I don't understand why the Dino collaborators are working it out that way. I think that you said like, okay, let's create a decentralized package manager. And then they didn't realize all the problems that right. were going to come along with it. Exactly. Yep, I agree. It's interesting, huh? Because I totally agree. I mean, when I install a module and then I open up the known modules, I just want to use this little thing and I've got like a hundred folders and in there there's tons of code. So I totally get that. That to me makes a lot of sense, right? But, you know, I guess you can argue for this forever, right? You know, Marcelo, in this kind of projects, everything is based on what the community really wants. So Dino is in its early versions, but if the community keeps asking for a centralized solution, I won't doubt we will have something coming along in the next future versions because Dino kind of depends on, and as any other project, as any other software, they depend on the community they have. So if the community feels uncomfortable the way I do, with having to depend or having to trust a dependency that has a dependency that has a dependency. If that makes me uncomfortable, I'm sure there's a thousand people that feel uncomfortable too. And so, you know, eventually we have to address that because you don't want a community to be uncomfortable, you know, um, that Dino depends on the community. So that's something Ryan and all the collaborators have to address eventually. I don't think it's a priority right now, but I I think if we want to get Dino widely used, if we want to get Dino to a enterprise level, that's something that needs to be addressed. Not right now, but this year. Right, but it definitely needs to be addressed prior to the enterprise really adopting this for a production level environment, right? Right, because, you know, when you're working in an enterprise, when you're an enterprise, you're not going to accept the fact that you have to trust. Trust doesn't exist in programming. There's logic to it. So if you tell an enterprise, oh, you just have to trust my package manager, my decentralized package manager, they're going to tell you, then I will use no, because trust doesn't exist for me as a company, as an enterprise. I need things to work in the way I expect them to work. <laughs> you see? Well, and what's funny is point one was making it more secure. Point two was decentralization, but it seems like point two 
is going against point one if you really think about it. They challenge each other. I right. cannot deny that. They challenge each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. We could probably talk about this for another hour, in, uh, but we're not going to do that. So if there was two points that you mentioned, the third point that I want you to talk a little bit more detail is you mentioned that by default, Dino is asynchronous and does everything in promises. So can you expand a little bit more on that and give some examples of where that makes sense? Sure. So... For example, in Node.js, you have access to asynchronous programming with the use of promises, of JavaScript promises, but that's something you have to implement on your own. That's something that you, you have to create your architecture for that. In Dino, everything, everything inside Dino, the core, the very core of Dino is asynchronous based, so it's promise based. So if you want to interact with the Dino core, you will get promises. If you want to creating an application on Dino, you have the infrastructure to create an asynchronous application already. You don't have to implement it in a way that, I'm, for example, as I mentioned before, Node.js doesn't support top-level await. And that's a thing. That's that's a big issue because you, you get around with these kind of problems the community is constantly talking about, like the callback hell. In Dino, you, you don't just have those issues. Not because Dino doesn't have it but because Dino cannot have it. It's just the fundamentals of Dino that everything is a promise and the very fact that Dino supports double away, which makes your code not only more readable, but also more, I would say faster because everything is asynchronous. And so answering your question, the core of Dino, when you want to interact with the Dino runtime, everything is a promise, everything. And so when everything is a promise, in the code of Dino, you're forced to use asynchronous programming in your code, which is a good thing. Many would argue that asynchronous programming has some flaws in JavaScript and, you know, the async and away things. But um, I would say it's a good thing that you are forced by the Dino core to use asynchronous programming because that, that actually makes your code more readable, faster, and probably reliable in some stuff, like processing tasks. Right. So I'm going to ask you a question that may sound dumb because I'm not a, a programmer. I pretend to be one on TV, but I'm not a real programmer. <laughs> but I do code once in a while. I have to do proof of concepts. And one of the issues that I had with Node is that every time I go out to a REST API and get data, I have to create a promise so I can do an await to get that data back before I can move on to the next thing to process that data, right? If I don't, then it just moves on and obviously I get a promise back and I can't do anything with it. So you're saying with Dino that would solve that problem where by default I can use top level await? I want to make sure I understand this correctly. Yes, now with Dino you can use top level await so you don't have to create a sync wrapper to process your methods to preserve the business log of your application. Now you just can do it on a single call. Like mm, you don't okay. like you don't need to wrap your application inside an asynchronous right. environment to work asynchronously. I see. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And that would definitely help a lot. Yeah. So I can see that as a huge positive. That's a huge positive. And it solves things like the callback hell. And that's something I recall because the callback hell is something that takes a lot of resources and takes a lot of reliability from your call. So when you have a callback hell of when you have multiple callback hells like the ones Node.js has, that's just something that damages your code, not only in performance, but also when you're reading through the code, you're just like, what am I reading? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yep, totally. So 
you keep talking about TypeScript, right? And so does that mean that by default you have to write in TypeScript or can you write in JavaScript? So Dino is a TypeScript and JavaScript runtime. So it does support JavaScript, but when if you want to write an application in JavaScript that runs on top of Dino, then it's kind of pointless to do so because Dino is written in TypeScript and the very the very essential of Dino is to create TypeScript applications. So it's unlikely you will find any module, for example. It's unlikely you will find any module for Dino written in JavaScript. That's unlikely. Because the very goal of Dino is to, to implement TypeScript as it's a new thing and as, as it has more extension that in, I would say more things to use than JavaScript. Well, and it's definitely a safer language, obviously, because of the typing, right? It forces you into typing everything. Yeah, it's a safer language. And so if you use JavaScript for Dino, it's not like your code will not run because your code will run, but then you're taking away all the advantage that Dino has, such as the TypeScript compiler written in Rust. But right now, the Dino community is writing a, a TypeScript compiler in Rust, and it's actually really good. It has a lot of features, such as the type checking, way faster than the original TypeScript compiler. So if you're going to write an application in JavaScript that runs on top of Dino, you're really just stopping to support what Dino has to offer you. You know, you're just stopping the use of the advantage of Dino because Dino, that's what Dino is. It's about a new technology written in TypeScript, which has a type checking, which has all these features that we've read about TypeScript. So yeah, you can just write an application in JavaScript. But the question would be, is that really wise? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So if people want to get started in developing Dino apps, it, first of all, it sounds like it's not ready for production. This is really right now, if you're doing any kind of anything with Dino, we're experimenting and testing things out. We're not ready to write production code here, correct? Yeah, and that's another discussion that's been there in the community, whether Dino is ready for production, when would it be if it's not right now? And I wouldn't say Dino is ready for production. And I'm going to be honest, Dino has a lot of flaws. It's not right now. For example, Dino doesn't support UDP communication. And if you're in the tech industry, you know, UDP communication is something really important when communicated between one computer and other computer or multiple computers. It's just something that needs to be supported. And the security flaws that we have talked about, such as the importing and trusting dependencies that have dependencies, that have dependencies. If Dino doesn't solve that, we're just not going to be production ready. So Dino needs to address a lot of issues before saying that's production ready. I mean, there's an official version right now, which is 1.1, I believe, which is the lastest version of Dino. But that doesn't mean it's production ready. That just means we're moving forward to that point. Yeah, definitely. So if developers want to get started in playing around with Dino, what are some of the things they need to know to even be able to start doing this? I mean, obviously, no developers can jump into that without a problem, correct? Yes. Node.js and Dino are really similar in regard to the runtime methods and way to write things. What about for other developers that are coming from, let's say, C Sharp or any, any other kind of languages? What should they know? Look, I would say the biggest advantage that Dino has is the fact that it's written in TypeScript because it allows other communities, such as the Java community, such as the c -sharp community, which are the type of languages, you know, to get involved with Dino. 
So the fact that it's written in TypeScript will make things more familiar for people. So really what you have to know in order to start writing Dino, creating applications on top of Dino, is just knowing what's a type of language, what the benefits of a type of language are, what's a OOP programming, object-oriented programming, what's that, what's behind that. All those concepts will help you to get started with Dino. But most importantly, you have to know about the JavaScript versions such as ECMA 6, ECMA 7, ECMA 8, because that's a thing in, in Dino. Dino uses a lot of the newest versions of JavaScript. Dino actually supports ECMA 8. And so you have to be involved with JavaScript in order to start writing Dino applications. And you have to be involved with the concept of a type language. As I said, you're more than welcome to write an application in JavaScript for Dino, but um, that's just not as wise as writing it in TypeScript. And if you're coming from a type of language, TypeScript is just the way to go. And just everything is there. Dino has a lot of documentation. Dino has a lot of resources regarding the API, the runtime API. So really, if you understand what programming is and if you have done coding before, Dino will just be as easy as writing on another type of language such as Java or such as C Sharp you mentioned. Very cool. All right. Well, Andres, unfortunately, we're out of time. I know if people want to find out more about Dino, they can go to dino.land, L-A-N-D, and they'll be able to find out more about Dino there, download the runtime, install it, and start playing with it. I want to thank you for your time, Andres. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for sharing your knowledge. You're obviously very knowledgeable, and like I said, I'm very, very impressed with you being a 19-year-old basically kid. Sorry, I say that. But what I mean by that is I have a 20 year old, you know, so to me, you're a kid. And it's just amazing how much you know, and where you're at in your life. So keep going at it. Because like I said before, you're going to accomplish great things in your life. Thank you so much, Marcel. It's been a pleasure for me to be here. We have talked about a lot about dinner. And, and I don't know this conversation can keep going, but we're just running out of time. But definitely, there's a lot of resources and information and articles out there about Dino, TypeScript, JavaScript, how to get involved with it. So I encourage people, I know you do too, we encourage people to get involved with Dino and start reading about it, totally. Definitely, learning is always a good thing. So Andres, thank you so much. If people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give them your email or Twitter, whatever you like? So I have a Twitter. I encourage people to follow me on my Twitter, which is Andres Tech with two E's. So A-N-D-R-E-E-S T-E-C-H. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram. Those are my social media. You can contact me and you can ask me any questions. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Andres. I really appreciate it. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Oh, oh, oh.